Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and this is actually the second recording of this week's podcast. We had uh, come in on Saturday to record it because I've got a lot of work for my law firm and wanted to use Sunday for that. And, you know, by now most of you probably have heard about the news in Charlottesville. We're going to talk about that shortly. But essentially, I I couldn't keep it together during the recording. I basically ended up going on a 15-minute Alex Jones-style extended tirade about the utter fucking mess that has become the Republican Party and the Republican leadership and the Nazis that they now support, practically. Uh, And we decided to just delete it all and start over because, one, I don't find anything at all redeeming about Alex Jones or his show and certainly don't want to be anything like him. Uh, But then, you know, it's it's not who I am normally. I mean, yesterday I was was fucking pissed. I mean, it's just something where you, you don't know how you can do anything to affect how totally fucked a situation is. And some people, that makes them sad. Some people, that makes them angry. You know, I, I, I don't have a temper, but I was beyond angry for most of the day yesterday. I ended up having to take a couple-hour break from Twitter, went back home, took Samson for a walk for a little bit, uh, started playing video games on my phone just to kind of decompress because it's it's a fucked up situation anyhow so we are back this is round two we are now uh it's now late sunday afternoon there's no redoing this so uh you know we got to make our monday deadline so we're going to hopefully get this all done in one take and be good to go um wanted to start off by giving a shout out to a couple people so this podcast has been made possible by folks financial support through our patreon page and this week, one of our Samson sponsors is Colleen Mahaney. And I, I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. The challenge of doing this all uh, via text is that sometimes I can't figure out how y'all's names are pronounced. But Colleen, thank you for your help. Um, for the folks who are our Samson sponsors on the Patreon page, it's patreon.com slash FSCK. Uh, we did have a short video of Samson put up there on Saturday night and then a Sunday uh, picture of him. This past week is the six-year anniversary of uh, me adopting him. So it was back on Tuesday, if I remember correctly. So uh, my girlfriend got him some treats, and he's got a picture of him posing with a snake. It's got little squeakers inside of it right before he tore the snake's uh, tongue out and chewed off one of its eyes. So Colleen, thank you. Uh, our Law 140 section this week is going to be brought to you by Byron Mobley of South Haven, Mississippi. He is one of our Law 140 lovers. Uh, he suggested we take a look at the bail system and how that's supposed to work and how it actually works in practice. So in the back third of the episode, we will talk about bail as part of our Law 140. Please make sure to join the conversation online. You can follow the account on Twitter. That is at Fiskamall, at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can also listen on our website, Fiskamall.com. That's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And as I mentioned, we have the Patreon page. That is Patreon.com slash Fisk. It's Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Uh, not going to talk a whole lot about the political news this week. Believe it or not, Charlotte was not the first or Charlottesville, rather, was not the first terrorist attack we've had uh, in this past week. Actually, up in Bloomington, Minnesota, someone decided to bomb a mosque up there. 
Uh, not sure if they've got anyone arrested yet. The uh, FBI determined that it was an improvised explosive device designed, uh, designed to blow up that particular uh, religious institution, and that investigation is ongoing. But then, of course, you had the the stuff going on Friday and Saturday in Charlottesville, Virginia, not too far from where I was born. I was born in Fredericksburg. I grew up in Virginia Beach. Uh, wanted to go to UVA for college, but UVA was actually more expensive Uh, as an in-state resident for me than it was for me to come to NC State with the scholarships that I had my freshman year. Uh, Ironically enough, those didn't carry over to my sophomore year, so after my sophomore year, I had to drop out. But I think very highly of uh, UVA and the institution and what they they produce, even if they do tend to be dominated by uh, the wealthy elites of my home state of Virginia. But yeah, so a a bunch of self-avowed Nazis and uh, Confederates and Republican voters with their MAGA hats and everything else, decided that they were going to show up in Charlottesville uh, to, I don't even know what the fuck you would call this. It's essentially a Unite the Right rally is what it was called, but it's it's a bunch of Klansmen without hoods showing up trying to terrorize the rest of the country. They have their fucking uh, tiki torches. You know, they... Forgive me. So even though we've taken a day, my thoughts on all of this are all over the fucking place. But one of the things that cracked me up is these pasty motherfuckers in their khaki pants and polo shirts talking about the glories of the white race and everything else. As part of their protest, you can't even get a bona fide fucking torch. You're buying a tiki torch, which guess what? Was not created by white guys. And that's what you use to march in a college town where college isn't actually in session because you don't want to deal with any opposition. You do it at night so that, you know, you can look all fearful and shit. You know, it's fucking ridiculous. Anyhow, so that was Friday. And the, uh, the Twitter account, at Yes, You're Racist, they uh, took some of the pictures from the event because these guys are out in the open. They're proud of their racism and started identifying them by name. And, uh, you know, it's it's similar to doxing where you expose someone's personal details. But in this case, it's not doxing because these assholes were actually out in public, wanted to be seen, wanted to be photographed. Um, so if you get bored, check that account at Yes, You're Racist. They've been doing good work over the past couple days exposing these motherfuckers. Uh, but then on Saturday, there was a follow-up rally that was planned. Uh, the governor declared a state of emergency, and the, the event was called off because there had been counter-protesters. The uh, Antifa folks were there. Uh, these little 3% clown show fucks who walk around with their militia gear and guns showed up. And basically, the whole thing got uh, very tense. You had a random black kid beaten in a garage by Nazis. And later on in the day, as things are trying to wind down, there's video released of two cars going down the street, Antifa protesters um, walking down the street, and a random-ass fucking Nazi revs up his car, a Dodge Charger, going at least two blocks, 40 miles an hour, crashes into one of the cars on purpose, which in turn crashes into the van, both of those cars crashing into dozens of the uh, protesters. So you have one person is dead, 32-year-old Heather Hayer uh, was killed in that incident, 19 others were injured, a lot of broken bones, a very bloody scene, and it's all on video. I mean, people have got fucking cell phone video, and some guy had a, a drone that was recording, so that's recorded, the media has it all. 
and this this pussy bastard James Alex Fields Jr., twenty year old fuck from Maumee, Ohio, uh, decided to flee the scene. I mean, you'd think a dude so fucking proud of the work that he's done. Uh, that he decided to stick around, but no, he backed up as quickly as he could and tried to run away, you little prick. Um, and that's, you know, that ended up being the, the coda, the capstone of this particular weekend of fuckery in Charlottesville. And then just hours later, one of the uh, police helicopters that was monitoring the area uh, crashed in a forest. So those two police officers died as well. So it's been a rough weekend for the folks in Charlottesville, but this... Um, you know, this this domestic terrorism from a self-avowed Nazi with all the fucking memes you can imagine on his Facebook page, the Peppy the Frog and all that other shit, you know, I don't know. I don't even know what to say on it. I mean, it's just, it's a fucking mess. And this ultimately is a, a moment where you would expect someone to stand up and exhibit some kind of fucking leadership and repudiate this type of bullshit. I mean, we, we fought a fucking war against the Nazis. World War II was against the Nazis. And here we are, sworn enemies of America. We've got them on our soil, and no one is willing to condemn them at the highest levels of power in this government because when you are Papaya Potus, Donald Trump, Mango Mussolini himself, decided to speak, this is what he had to say. But we're closely following the terrible events unfolding in Charlottesville, Virginia. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. What the fuck is this on many sides shit? You know, one side showed up with clergy, with protest signs. The other side showed up with fucking AR-15s, clubs, torches, and a goddamn Dodge Charger that a piece of shit decided to mow people down with. Jesus Christ. You know, in politics, we hear a lot about Bill Clinton and the what they call the sister soldier moment, where he ended up uh, repudiating one of the, uh, the uh, fuck, I don't even remember the details. It was one of a rapper, sister soldier, of course. Um, you know, and this is one of those moments in politics where that's so fucking easy you have a Nazi killing people, but instead you don't want to piss off your base. You don't want to offend people that voted for you. It's this quintessential fucking Trump. It reminds me of that Bill O'Reilly interview where he's busy criticizing America in response to O'Reilly, who I despise, but even a broken clock is right twice a day. O'Reilly points out that uh, Vladimir Putin is a killer, but our own Velveeta Vladimir decided to respond by pointing out, oh, you know, we're not so innocent. Do we still have that clip? Put that clip in. Put that clip in right here. Do you respect Putin? I do respect him. Do you? Why? Well, I respect a lot of people, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get along with him. He's a leader of his country. Uh, I say it's better to get along with Russia than not. Will I get along with him? I have no idea. He's a killer, though. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why, you think our country's so innocent? And that's the mentality that's been going around the fucking internet since all this shit happened. A bunch of pseudo-conservatives, people that claim to belong to the Republican Party, claim to believe in liberty, aren't willing to condemn a fucking murderer because, well, over in Berkeley, the Antifa folks shut down a protest. Up in wherever the fuck that random Trump rally was, they protested at a Trump rally. Fuck you. 
All right. The fact that some random fucking anarchists in California at a different city, different state, different event, different degree of quote unquote violence did something does not justify a fucking terrorist on the other goddamn coast in a completely different city, state, people, time doesn't justify killing them. All right. We actually have a, a phrase for it. It's called both sidesism. This whole notion that both sides are equally complicit. And it's it's crazy to me that Republicans are using that for domestic issues when when that happens internationally, they flip shit. Oh well, you know, yeah, North Korea is bad, but the Americans, man, they've killed people too. They got killers on both sides. Oh, you know, even though ISIS decided to go attack Paris, France. You know, the Americans, they're bad too. The French, they've killed people. It's on both sides. Jesus Christ. You're a bunch of incompetent fucks. The, the, the moral sentiment of it is bad enough, repulsive enough, fucking disgusting enough. But the fact you don't even have the goddamn logical intelligence, the ability to reason, to understand how totally fucking stupid you sound blows my mind. And that's not even getting into the fucking racial component because the uh, one of the first things you saw as this is all unfolding on Saturday is a uh, reporter who's at a police station because someone punched her in the face. She's filing a complaint interviewing uh, witnesses to this thing because this happened while she was at the station. The police go, oh, well, you know, the driver was surrounded. He probably panicked. Now, of course, that's all total bullshit because, of course, there's video from multiple vantage points all over the damn place. Not only was the car not surrounded, the dude was able to kick it in reverse so he could try and flee the scene. But that doesn't stop all these little Republican shits on Twitter from repeating it. Chris Lash, is that how you pronounce his name? The asshole that's married to Dana Lash, the uh, woman who is doing these NRA ads talking about let's get clenched with our fist of truth and all this other fucking bullshit. You know, this little clown show fuck has not accomplished anything in his life other than having kids and managing his wife's business. But he's on Twitter to his little 500,000 followers going, oh, yeah, absolutely. He, he must have been scared. You know, this is what it was. You know, what makes you think that's a logical fucking analysis? Someone's crashed into other people. People have died. And your response is, oh, he must have been surrounded. He must have been scared. It doesn't even compute. It's not a fucking logical conclusion unless that's what you want to believe because the guy's white. So, of course, he's got to be an innocent person that just happened to be scared because these evil liberals caused him to go murder people. I'll tell you what, it's what Republican legislators want. That's exactly the, the thought process that these politicians want. Because you might recall just a couple months ago, actually, no, I'm wrong. It was almost a year ago at this point, uh, at Instapundit, one of the big uh, Republican people on Twitter, uh, posted a picture of Black Lives Matter protesters on the highway with the, quote, run them down, in all caps. And you have these memes where uh, there's one of an F-150 truck with blood on the bumper, and the text reads, a Black Lives Matter protester was in the street, and then the, at the bottom it says, was. You know, there's a one shared by a guy who's the head of the uh, Santa Fe Police Union that says, all lives splatter, no one cares about your protest. And then you've got these bills that they've been uh, introducing in the legislatures to basically give drivers immunity from civil suit for running people over. You know, House Bill 330, I think, is the one here in North Carolina. Passed the House. 
And there's other legislation in at least 17 other states to make this legal. Now, of course, the response is, oh, no, no, it wouldn't apply to this situation because it doesn't apply when the conduct of the driver is willful and wanton. But guess what, guys? The law on negligence already protects drivers who accidentally hit people who've put themselves in harm's way. That's already there. If you don't believe me, look up the doctrine of contributory negligence. It already exists. There's no benefit from that law in North Carolina in particular, which begs the question, why would you introduce it? Why would you pass it? Why would you adopt a law that prohibits something that's already prohibited? The only reason you would do that is if you were trying to signal fucking Gomer and Bubba and all these other assholes in the countryside with their fucking Confederate flags, Nazi memorabilia, trying to convince them that it's okay to run people down because they've been fucking inconvenienced. All right. That's why this shit happens. That's why all these bills have been introduced. The party that I belong to has been playing footsie, fucking fornicating with Nazis for months. Probably longer than that, if we're being honest with each other. I mean, this shit really flourished under Obama. I saw it during the campaign when I had a guy come up to me totally unsolicited to tell me he was not going to donate to a back-to-school supply drive that I was helping to uh, participate in because all the goddamn spicks were his words. All the goddamn spicks in our schools, if we just sent them all back to Mexico, we'd have 50% fewer students. No, you ignorant fuck. Go walk into any elementary school classroom in Durham. That's not true here. It sure as hell isn't true anywhere else. Saw it when I was up in uh, some of the other parts of my district where there's a damn Klan rally the day that I'm going up to go speak to a Republican event. You know, this has been going on for some time. We've kind of ignored it, pretended it didn't exist. You know, maybe it doesn't exist among the elites, the party, like, high-end eggheads, professional leadership, but it damn sure exists among the voters, and the voters aren't listening to the eggheads. You know, I read a, uh, I read a column in National Review Online by uh, Jay Nordlinger, who's very good, uh, smart guy, and he's writing about the stuff that has uh, happened in Charlottesville and the president's uh, utterly fucking terrible response. And one of the things that he uh, says in this column is he's, he's addressing Trump and how people talk about him. And there's a snippet here where he says, quote, Trump's spokeswoman, Sarah Sanders, said this is a president who fights fire with fire. On Fox, her father, Mike Huckabee, said that Trump had made it clear if you hit him, he will hit you back 10 times harder. Trump does not hit Putin and he does not hit white nationalists. They noticed, too. The white nationalists noticed it yesterday and were properly, publicly grateful. Yesterday was a time for character in the office of the presidency, and this is my problem with the scorecard approach to Trump, the approach that many conservatives take to him. They also refer to it as calling balls and strikes. It goes something like this. Gorsuch, good. Carrier deal, bad. Withdrawal from climate agreement, good. A trillion in new infrastructure, bad. And so on. Little check marks. But the little check marks, even the big ones, don't cover the moral dimension of the presidency, which is large. No conservative would have disputed that before Trump. But now, many call it moral preening and worse. When pro-Trump conservatives asked other conservatives to look away from the question of truth, decency, and honor, they asked a lot, more than they might have known. It was too much to ask, too much to accept. 
If I had my way, the Republican Party, starting with Trump and the conservative movement, would tell the alt-right, or whatever it should be called, to take their frog and their torches and their buzzwords and stuff it. I think that if conservatism gets associated in the public mind with nationalism, populism, demagoguery, grievance, race consciousness, and tribalism, we are cooked in the country too. Now, I like Jay, but guess what, Jay? That ship's already set sail because it's not just the stuff from this week. This week is the culmination of stuff that's led up to it. It's the end result of what politicians have wanted for months. This is what they've wanted. They don't like seeing it because what they see is more repulsive than what they expected it to look like, but this is what they've wanted. This is what the party has brought forth. Now, that's not to say Democrats are the answer because, you know, you look at the stories this weekend. We got people wanting to give police more discretion to cancel rallies. Holy shit. The same people killing folks every week. All of a sudden, we want to give them more power over the First Amendment. Y'all are fucking nuts. But right now, the focus is on the Republican Party and their base voters who are walking around with Confederate and Nazi flags, two sets of ideologies that are premised on the inferiority of everyone who's not white, who both lost their respective wars from the crowd that likes to chant, we won, get over it. Maybe you should get over the fucking Civil War and World War II, you clowns. Anyhow, y'all need Jesus. That's all I got to say. All right, let's get into some of the justice news. There was other political stuff this week, but I don't have the patience to go over it, and frankly, we're already at 21 minutes. Um... So over in the forced, uh, forced, the First Circuit Court of Appeals, in the case of U.S. v. Uh, Bauzo Santiago out of Puerto Rico, I, I'm not going to go into the facts of the case. Uh, I just want to highlight one piece of it. So this is a man who was arrested for being a felon with a firearm, legit arrest, tried to fire his lawyer, and in the process sent a note on his own to the judge uh, basically confessing his guilt. So the court goes into detail about how utterly stupid that was. And it's not a police brutality decision, but it's an entertaining read. So I would check it out. The Atlantic Magazine on Monday. This happens every time, by the way. Every day we drop a podcast, there ends up being a very widely promoted piece that comes out that we weren't able to include in the podcast for that week. Uh, So on Monday, the Atlantic released a long-form piece on plea bargaining, basically discussing that, you know, whether or not you're innocent doesn't matter because the uh, financial and life stress of being jailed, being out on bond, going through the system heavily incentivizes plea agreements and everyone pleads. Uh, I think upwards of 98% of all criminal charges everywhere in the country result in some form of plea deal. So we'll link that to you in the show notes from The Atlantic. Uh, In the States, we were going to go by the order that the states were admitted into the country, uh, that was the initial plan, but you know, after I kind of flamed out on the initial recording of the podcast and came back, and I'm still kind of in a pissy mood about it, we're going to stick with going alphabetically because I'm just still frustrated about life and uh, the shit in Charlottesville. Anyhow, in Alaska, we do have some good news. Uh, you might recall our podcast a couple weeks back, uh, DeVarge Walker, a black man who was riding an ATV and then got accosted by an off-duty jail guard who pulled a gun and then arrested him. Uh, Charges against Walker have been dropped. And supposedly the off-duty prison guard no longer works with the prison. Don't know if he's been fired or quit or what, but that's been done. 
Uh, in California, we got three stories out of California. Uh, in Los Angeles, this is going to be fun. Uh, the Los Angeles Police Commission held a hearing because they're going to approve the use of drones by police for tactical purposes. Good luck with that. Let's further militarize these guys who've already got a long-standing, well-documented history of killing random people because they can. Let's give them more military toys. That's going to be great. Uh, in San Jose, a Campbell police officer stops a car along Route 101 for speeding, asks the driver for registration. The passenger goes to reach for the registration documents as the officer requested, and the officer flips shit, draws his gun, has his gun pointed at the passenger for nine minutes until backup can arrive. And of course, all of this is on video because first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. So that was in uh, San Jose. In Fresno, this is... <laughs> so a um, two Kern County Sheriff's deputies, Logan August and Derek Penny, uh, conspired to sell drugs. They would steal drugs from the evidence locker and then sell them to other people. Now, that's a big deal. Being a drug dealer is serious business, especially when you end up in federal court for it. The feds don't typically fuck around with tiny amounts of stuff. But once you're doing a high-end deal, drug trafficking and such, the federal government gets involved. So to be in federal court means these guys were pushing a lot of weight. It also means a lot of people probably went to jail as a result of their flagrant corruption. But rather than get any kind of jail time... Both of these guys who got paid with your tax dollars to steal things and sell them to people uh, are getting probation. They're getting absolutely no jail time at all whatsoever. And I'm just going to read an extended quote from the news story. But in an extraordinary and tearful sentencing hearing presided over by U.S. District Court Judge Lawrence O'Neill, the two officers were spared prison time by the judge who was clearly moved by the defendant's remorse their decision to voluntarily confess everything to investigators, the pain the families have already suffered, and the unwavering support the two wives have given their husbands. Quote, being the wife of a law enforcement officer is not easy, the judge told Tiffany August and Callie Penny after asking both women to stand. Being the wife of a fallen law enforcement officer is even more difficult. O'Neill went on to acknowledge that the wives had taken the brunt, maybe the largest share of the suffering meted out by the acts of their husbands. The two of you have been incredible not to have gotten into the U-Haul and taken off. The both of you should be proud. What? Are you kidding me? Do you know how many clients I have had hauled off to jail who've had strongly supportive spouses in the courtroom? Jesus Christ. Wow. This is... This is wild. Now, to the U.S. attorney's credit, they recommended that these guys go to jail. They didn't go ahead and, and lowball it like you're doing with uh, the guy down in South Carolina. They wanted these guys to go to prison, and the judge was clearly moved by them voluntarily confessing everything to investigators. Guess what? If you wait until you're investigated, it's not a voluntary confession. Voluntarily confessing is when no one's at your door no one suspects anything's going on, and you just go ahead and give it up anyway. You don't get the benefit of a confession after you've already been arrested for it. And what is this shit about their wives? God, they don't do this with black people. I'm sorry, they don't. You could have any person of color in the country 
have their wife in the courtroom every single day, and no judge is going to let them avoid jail entirely because the wife was so supportive. They also don't do it with white people who aren't cops. Maybe if they're rich. Maybe rich white people would get that benefit. But if you're broke and you don't have a badge, you're going to jail, especially when you're dealing drugs, especially drugs that you're dealing were stolen from the evidence locker. So that's going on in Fresno. Over in Connecticut, there's an interesting story. We'll see what happens uh, in Hartford. Reginald Dwayne Betts, uh, he's actually my age. He's 36, and he was convicted of felony carjacking back when he was 16, so 20-something years ago. Uh, this guy really turned his life around, became a poet, has published two separate books on poetry, um, and then went to Yale Law School where he graduated and passed the bar exam. Uh, they now had a hearing for what's called a character and fitness review to determine whether or not he has adequate moral character to be a lawyer. Uh, this is a standard part of applying to, to go to law school. I went through it myself. I had to have a hearing uh, because they went through every single thing going back to when I was you know, a teenager myself. Every job I'd ever been fired from, I had to explain to them you know, what happened. I uh, had a dispute with the city of Raleigh because I had been photographed on a red light camera and they uh, claim I hadn't paid the fine in a timely fashion, even though I did. Uh, so I had to explain that and everything else. Uh, so this is normal, but it's going to be interesting to see whether or not the Connecticut bar allows him to practice because it's very common for them to determine that people with criminal records aren't allowed to get a law license, which is ironic because we have a lot of lawyers uh, who are criminals. A lot of people steal money from their clients and get disbarred all the time, and they're just shitty lawyers. But if you've done something in the past, even if you've paid to your debt to society and turned your life around, there are a lot of times we still won't let you practice law. So we'll see how that shakes out. Uh, in Washington, D.C., D.C. Officer Brian Trainer, y'all might remember, he's the one who killed Terrence Sterling last year. Uh, Sterling was a black guy on a motorcycle, completely unarmed, got executed anyway. Trainer will not face any charges because we allow people to kill motorists and get away with it. Uh, in Florida, down in Miami, Miami Police Department Officer Daniel Crocker took the phone of Sergio Morales. Uh, for, quote, safety, unquote. Morales was being arrested for unknown reasons. Uh, we'll get to that piece in a second. And Morales decided to try and record the interaction because I feel like at this point, it's just common sense. So Morales took the phone, admitted to taking the phone. The phone magically disappeared. So all evidence of that particular interaction is gone. But then here's the kicker. The charges against Morales were dropped. So there's no way of finding out what happened with the phone through the discovery process. And then the police department said there's not enough evidence to determine that Crocker took the phone, even though Crocker admitted to taking the phone. So that's going on in Miami PD. Officer Crocker, by the way, was hired on October 15th of 2001, 16 years ago, uh, and has racked up one administrative complaint, 18 citizen complaints, one driving complaint, and 19 use of force incidents. So this guy's averaging roughly two a year, give or take. Uh, fine specimen of taxpayer-funded uh, police work down in Miami, Florida. In Indiana, in Richmond, Indiana, photos were posted online of on-duty police sleeping on the job in a cemetery. Apparently they were bored, so they figured a cemetery would be a good place to get some rest. Over in Maryland, uh, Rachel Cohen of The Intercept has a review of Maryland's policies and court opinions on releasing body cam footage. That's a follow-up to the second uh, set of videos that came out with Baltimore PD planting drugs. So that's a good piece that we'll link to you for you to read. Um, 
<laughs> in New Jersey. God, I feel like a lot of these stories are just repetitive. It's the exact same stuff happening in different states, and it's fucking sad. So in New Jersey, in East Brunswick, a local pizzeria has been terrorized by police because a snowflake showed up to order food and completely falsified what happened. Uh, So Mancini Pizza was the target of a Facebook boycott. The Facebook post says, quote, Last week, a uniformed East Brunswick officer went into Mancini Pizza to pick up lunch. While the officer was waiting for the food to be prepared, an employee wrote pig on the pizza box and displayed it to customers inside the pizzeria as entertainment. The officer called the employee out for this behavior, which prompted the owner to become involved. Now, this is from the uh, Police Benevolent Association, basically the union for the East Brunswick Police in New Jersey. Uh, While waiting for her food to be prepared, an incident occurred where an employee used a pizza box to transcribe a derogatory comment directed toward the officer. After confronting the employee, the officer left without reimbursement or the food she purchased. The East Brunswick PBA fully supports the officer involved and is troubled over this unprovoked and unsettling incident. The East Brunswick PBA is asking for a boycott of Mancini Pizza. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, you might recall from our very uh, our second podcast, we talked about the Raleigh PBA terrorizing a local barbecue joint because they claimed that the employees uh, were singing NWA's Fuck the Police, And then it turned out when security cam came out that that was not true at all. Well, as you would expect, that actually wasn't true in this case either because the officer ordered a panini, which the owner pointed out goes in a bag, not a pizza box. It was not the officer's food. The officer saw a P written on the box because it was a plain pizza for someone else. And what she took to be an I and a G, the owner actually released a picture. It's actually a squiggle line to show that they were getting garlic sticks. So, again, we have uh, your fine public employees terrorizing private citizens and their businesses because they're fucking snowflakes who misinterpret everything they happen to see. In New York, uh, in Buffalo, they are the subject of a long-form piece on CNN regarding the Buffalo Police Department and the fact they somehow managed to go four years and two million responsive calls without shooting anyone, which is actually pretty impressive. So we'll link that to you so you can check it out. Uh, Here in North Carolina, in Durham, Leandre Blakeney, 26-year-old black man at Duke's Divinity School, was arrested for disrupting a Durham County Commissioner's meeting where protesters were protesting the jail conditions, except it turns out that Blakeney was not part of the protest. He showed up late but got arrested anyway, and the sheriff's deputy who arrested him swore that Blakeney uh, hit him as part of a scuffle. Uh, Blakeney has been found not guilty by a judge. This wasn't a case of a, you know, sometimes judges will dismiss for lack of evidence. In this case, this was a three-day trial that went straight to verdict, and the judge ruled that Blakeney was not guilty. Uh, We also have a long-form expose covering a five-day series in the News and Observer on deaths and other problems in our jail system. You might recall a couple weeks back we mentioned the expose on the prisons and the fuckery that goes on there. Prisons are for when you're locked up for more than a year. Jails are for everything else. So we've got this expose on jails here in North Carolina. Over in Ohio, in Euclid, uh, a video has been released of police beating the shit out of 25-year-old Richard Hubbard III. And this this went viral on uh, over the weekend. It was an Instagram post that someone had recorded who was near the scene. Um, and the focus has been on the police beating Hubbard. 
And that, that's a legitimate point. I don't want to take away from that. You know, I, I don't know the details of what happened before the police were beating him. So even though it was excessive from what I've seen, um, you know, that to me is not the chilling part. What you'll notice if you watch the full video is that Hubbard's girlfriend who was in the car with him gets her camera, her phone out to record. And within seconds, within seconds of her starting to record what's going on, one of the officers gets up, grabs her phone, grabs her, puts her on the ground face down and places her under arrest. That's the part that's most disturbing to me out of that video. You have a right under the First Amendment to record police when those police are doing their jobs in a public space, as long as you don't interfere with what the police are doing. Standing back and recording on your phone is not interfering with what the police are doing. They have no right to arrest you. So, you know, focus on Hubbard being beaten, sure, but let's particularly focus on his girlfriend being arrested because she's trying to document the scenario, which is a totally legitimate thing to do given how frequently police decide to unnecessarily kill black men because they can. Over in Oklahoma, speaking of killing black men, y'all might remember killer cop Betty Shelby. She was the one who executed Terrence Crutcher. Uh, Crutcher had the misfortune of his SUV breaking down on a roadway. Police showed up, and rather than help him with his car, they decided to shoot him dead. Uh, this woman was charged with manslaughter and acquitted, but she was fired from Tulsa PD. So, of course, she got hired somewhere else. She is now a deputy sheriff in Rogers County. She gets to have a badge after killing someone on the job for sport. Over in South Carolina, we've got a, a mixed bag of news here. So the good news is in York County, South Carolina, six deputies have been disciplined, including two who were fired for repeatedly having sex while on duty. Uh, Sergeant Jennifer Forsyth and Deputy Daniel Hamrick were the ones fired. Lieutenant Brian Bowling was demoted. Captain Carson Neely, Sergeant Wayne Richardson, and Sergeant Buddy Brown were all suspended without pay. So that's the good news. There's at least a little bit of accountability there. But then in Columbia, apparently there's a, a probe going on about legislators who have been engaged in wrongdoing. And the Attorney General, Alan Wilson, uh, basically gave information to one of the targets of the probe in a string of emails that got requested by the media as part of a uh, public records request. Turns out that one of the people that is uh, they're being looked into is State Representative Rick Quinn and his father, Richard Quinn, who happens to have been a political consultant for the Attorney General. Uh, they had appointed a special prosecutor to look into the case, uh, the attorney general is sending emails to Quinn, the father, saying, hey, how would you word this letter with these details about it going to this other party about how we're going to try and get rid of Pasco? Um, and then Quinn writes back, here are some edits. And uh, Pasco was promptly fired and Wilson's office took over the probe. So that's South Carolina political corruption run amok going on there. Enjoy that. And then finally in Texas, this this Texas, man. Uh, Houston. Images have been released of the Harris County Sheriff's Office. Uh, they had a 2015 roadside rape of 21-year-old black female Charnisha Corley. She was pulled over with other folks in her car. The other folks were taken to the police car, and uh, they, the police officers, or sheriff's deputies rather, mentioned to the folks in the car that they're going to find drugs on Corley. Uh, Corley didn't actually have any drugs on her, by the way, spoiler alert, but they end up taking her out of the car, taking her to the side of the car, 
stuck, uh, take her head, stuff her head under the car so she can't move it, tear her panties off, and take her legs, put her feet up by her ears, and spend 11 minutes digging through this woman's vagina. 11 minutes. We're at the 40-minute mark of this podcast. Imagine one-fourth of the time you have been listening to us, you have a sheriff's deputy digging around in your vagina. Of course, they didn't find anything. But what is astonishing, utterly astonishing, is that there are absolutely no charges at all that have been uh, filed against any of those officers. The prosecutor actually gave a quote that I'm just, oh, man. Harris County Prosecutor Natasha Sinclair says, quote, no one in this office stands by the search the way it was conducted. No one condones that. No one thinks it's appropriate. It should not have happened. However, bad decisions, bad judgment may not rise to the level of a criminal offense. Miss Sinclair, I got news for you. Okay, when someone does something this egregious, flagrant violation of someone's Fourth Amendment rights against an unreasonable search and seizure, and you don't even try to prosecute, you don't even make the attempt, guess what? That's you condoning what happened. That's you saying to them that you think it's appropriate. Otherwise, you go ahead and take the case to trial, have the judge throw out, force the judge to say, okay, that's fine. But by you not even attempting to prosecute these people for something so egregious, You're giving them license to keep doing it again. So believe it or not, that's actually it for the criminal justice news this week. It's a shorter batch than normal. We were only at uh, three pages of criminal justice fuckery. So let's go ahead and transition into our Law 140 topic this week from Byron Mobley of South Haven, Mississippi, one of our Law 140 lovers. I'm going to give you an overview on bail. So Mike just reminded me I should probably explain what a Law 140 lever is. It's one of our sponsorship levels at the Patreon page. So if you go to patreon.com slash Fisk, you can join the community with just a dollar. Um, but then we do have levels for our Samson sponsors and our Law 140 lovers as well. So that's what I'm referring to when I say he's a Law one, Byron is a Law 140 lover. Uh, one of the perks of that is that you get to pick one of the Law 140 topics because it gives me a chance to uh, not have to figure out what I'm going to talk about, which is nice. And then y'all get to hear something that you want to hear. So check that out if you're interested. But this week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about bail. And this is one of those issues that predates our founding as a country. It was a concept that we inherited from the British. And because of that, um, there's a lot of common law stuff that we kind of you know inherited with it that we're supposed to follow and how it all works. So when people talk about bail, and, and I should probably clarify on the front end, bail and bond are used pretty much interchangeably among lay people. Um, They're often used interchangeably among lawyers, to be honest with you. They're basically the same concept. Um, The purpose of bail slash bond uh, is to do one of two things. It's to ensure that the person who's been arrested shows up to court. So the idea is that you pay a little bit of money to avoid being detained until trial as a way of ensuring that you'll actually show up. And then it's also to prevent threats from the community committing additional crimes while they're released. Those are the only two reasons why bail exists. So you have uh, certain types 
of Bayo, and this is where kind of the bond piece comes in, you have what's called unsecured bond. It's also sometimes called being released on your own recognizance, or uh, if you watch Law and Order, they call it ROR. Uh, essentially what this means is that you're free to go as long as you sign some paperwork that says that if you don't show up to court like you're supposed to, the court can enter a civil judgment against you for whatever the dollar amount is of the unsecured bond. So you'll often hear people on first offense drug charges here in Durham. The judge will say, all right, you're released on 5,000 unsecured. It means if you show up to court, nothing happens. But if you miss court, the court has the power to enter a $5,000 judgment against you by docketing it in the civil division. Uh, so that's how unsecured bond works. You then have what's called a secured bond or a cash bond uh, where you end up having to pay the full bond amount in order to be released. So a, a 2000 secured means you pay $2,000 to the government. They hold it during the duration that is uh, while you're out before you come back to court. And typically once your case is uh, resolved, they'll return the money to you in full within you know six to eight weeks after everything is resolved. Not a lot of people have that kind of money laying around. So the most common type of bond that you'll see is called a surety bond. And essentially, this is for bail bondsmen, where you pay them some percentage of what your bond amount is. 10% is pretty common. So a $5,000 bond, you pay $500 to a bondsman. You don't get that money back. That money is gone. Uh, and then the bondsman has, uh, they're bonded, and they basically sign some paperwork that says that if you skip court, uh, they're on the hook. They pay the amount of the bond, and then what they'll do is they'll hire what's called a bail enforcement agent uh, or what we call them a bounty hunter. Uh, they'll hire someone to hunt you down and make sure that you're brought to court. And typically the bounty hunter will get some percentage of whatever amount is involved. Um, so those are the most common things. Now, there are some states that have abolished surety bonds. I don't know off the top of my head what they are. I think Illinois, I want to say, is one of them where you either have an unsecured bond or you pay the money to the government and you get the money back. Um, I'm, not, I'm still not sure yet you know, what I think about that because my problem with it is that people just don't have that type of cash lying around and I'm, I'm terribly nervous of what happens if bondsmen are gotten rid of. Uh, but at the same time, I hate that we use secured bonds for so many offenses. But that's, that's a political discussion. We can talk about that on Twitter another day. Um, so just know that you've got the unsecured bond being released on your own recognizance, secured bond where you pay the full amount, and a surety bond where the bondsman posts a, a note and you pay the bondsman a certain percentage. And then, of course, there are other types. You could have what's called a property bond where you uh, sign over the deed to your house in exchange for getting released and that sort of thing. And again, the purposes for bail or for bond are only, only to ensure that you show up to court and that you don't commit any other crimes while you're released. That's it. So we talk about second rule of Fisk. You start at the source. Bail is mentioned in two different places in the Constitution. Now, it's, not, it's only mentioned explicitly in one of those places, but it's mentioned twice. So in the Fifth Amendment, you have the provision that no one shall be denied uh, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So the question becomes, what kind of process are you entitled to have 
in order to be detained prior to trial. Uh, So we'll talk about that in a second. But then it's also mentioned explicitly in the opening words of the Eighth Amendment, which says excessive bail shall not be required. And the rest of the amendment goes on to say, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Uh, One of the things that was a problem back during colonial times was having bail used as a punishment. It's something where they would give an exorbitant bail amount to ensure that you never saw the light of day and you would just rot in a jail cell waiting for a trial. And it was something that was so serious, the founders wanted to put that into the Constitution itself. And the, uh, the statutory ways that bail and bond work vary really wildly by state. It's a very dramatic variation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the federal law on it. Uh, it's 18 United States Code Section 3142, uh, Release or Detention of a Defendant Pending Trial. Now, the statute is lengthy. I'm going to give you the link to it in the show notes. I want you to go read it all because it's actually one of the more logically written federal statutes. I mean, most federal statutes are a mess, but this one is actually pretty uh, logically put together. But essentially what it provides is that pretrial detention hearings are only for certain types of offenses. So it's for crimes of violence, as you would expect, uh, offenses where you can get the um, death penalty or life imprisonment, of course, Uh, certain drug offenses, so we're talking high-level drug trafficking a lot of the times, certain repeat offenders because they're expected to offend again when they're released, Uh, or any case where there's a serious risk that the offender is either going to flee the jurisdiction or engage in obstruction of justice while they're uh, released. So those are the cases where you have a pretrial hearing to determine whether or not you should be confined before trial. The rest of the time, you're supposed to be released. They give you some interviews, they um, figure out where you live, who you are, and then send you to the probation folks that you can be released on pretrial supervision. That's the default for anything that doesn't fall into one of those categories. I mentioned in the last podcast one of my clients who had a case in the uh, the Middle District of North Carolina on a money laundering situation. Um, they were able to be released on pretrial supervision. That was a foregone conclusion. All we had to do was make sure that they jumped through the applicable hoops, got the paperwork done. Um, but for these hearings, for these subset of cases where there's a greater risk that there's a problem, It's an adversarial hearing. It's like a full-blown mini-trial. It's in front of a judge. All of the facts that are found in fashioning whether or not this person can be released have to be found using what's called a clear and convincing evidence standard. So this is something roughly in between beyond a reasonable doubt, and then you have the civil standard uh, preponderance of the evidence. Clear and convincing evidence is in between the two. So the legalese we use is it's evidence where, quote, it means that the party must present evidence that leaves you with a firm belief or conviction that it is highly probable that the factual contentions of the claim or defense are true. So the judge will hear evidence from the state about the strength of their case and their argument for why someone should be detained. They'll hear from the defense and on why the person should be released pending trial. And then the judge issues an order and makes a decision with explicit findings of fact based on that standard and conclusions of law. And that decision is immediately reviewable on appeal, even while the trial is pending. Typically, you can't do what are called interlocutory appeals, where you're appealing something mid-trial. Usually that's not allowed. 
but in certain cases it is, and this is one of those certain cases. So in terms of court opinions interpreting that statutory setup, the question becomes, is that constitutional? Is the government allowed to detain you when you haven't been convicted of a crime yet? And the Supreme Court has said, as you'd expect, yes. In 1987, the case of United States versus Salerno was a 6-3 decision by Chief Justice Rehnquist, and they ruled that the pretrial detention statutes are constitutional because they're designed to be more regulatory in nature as opposed to penal in nature. It's not to punish you, it's to uh, basically you're balancing interests between your interest in being released and society's interest in making sure you do show up to court and you don't commit any crimes while you're out. So here's an excerpt from that decision that kind of gets the highlights. So the court said, quote, We conclude that the detention imposed by the act, this is the uh, Bail Reform Act, the statute that I just read you, falls on the regulatory side of the dichotomy. The legislative history of the Bail Reform Act clearly indicates that Congress did not formulate the pretrial detention provisions as punishment for dangerous individuals. Congress instead perceived pretrial detention as a potential solution to a pressing societal problem. There is no doubt that preventing danger to the community is a legitimate regulatory goal, nor are the incidents of pretrial detention excessive in relation to the regulatory goal Congress sought to achieve. The Bail Reform Act carefully limits the circumstances under which detention may be sought to the most serious of crimes. The arrestee is entitled to a prompt detention hearing, and the maximum length of pretrial detention is limited by the stringent time limitations of the Speedy Trial Act. Moreover, the conditions of confinement envisioned by the Act appear to reflect the regulatory purposes relied upon by the government. Now, some of that opinion is horseshit. This notion of the Speedy Trial Act is laughable because the fact is the government takes its sweet-ass time handling criminals every day, and then when we raise the fact that people are languishing in jails without trial, the response is, well, we've just got too many people in the jails. You know, the government creates a problem and then blames the problem it itself created as it creates more problems. You know, it... it, Anyhow, I could go on at length about that whole clusterfuck aspect of how we operate jails. But... The fact is that pretrial detention is allowed, and it's a, it's a logical thing that even I, as an anti-government conservative, understand, and it makes sense. But that, of course, brings up the question, how do you deal with someone who's broke? Because the fact is, just getting arrested is terribly disruptive on your life. You know, I try to live a law-abiding life myself. I'm a lawyer. If I were to commit a crime, I'd be putting my professional license at risk. But I think, you know, if I were to get arrested, who's going to walk Samson and take him out before he shits the house? You know, who's going to feed him? How am I going to handle getting to clients, going to uh, hearings? You know, if I end up going to jail, even if it's for just a day or just a couple days, that can completely derail my life. And here I am. I'm a guy with two degrees and five years of professional experience running my own business, and everything would fall apart in 48 to 72 hours of me being jailed. Um, Now, take that and apply that to folks who work by the hour for someone else and don't have any kind of money set aside, don't have access to credit, don't have friends they can call. 
it becomes a snowball effect. It destroys their life. The Atlantic piece that I mentioned earlier, talking about the fact that everyone takes a plea agreement, a big part of that is because the court process is so disruptive even when you've done nothing wrong. Not only are you stuck in jail and you can't follow through with basic life commitments, a lot of people get fired because they don't show up to work and you can't reach your boss to explain why. If you do explain why, you get fired because it sounds like you're a criminal because by default, we assume the fact that the police have charged you means the police are right, even though oftentimes they're not. You know, it becomes a very serious issue and there's a lot of discussion about the unfairness of bail and bond policy in states all over the country because of this problem. You know, Texas is a good example. There was a case in Texas federal court uh, where someone was challenging the bail process as being unconstitutional because it didn't account for people who are broke in setting what bail or bond amount is appropriate. And then a uh, hearing was had before the, uh, is it the Fifth Circuit out there? Forgive me for not knowing this off the top of my head, but I think it was the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the district court decision, and then Texas appealed it to the Supreme Court, and uh, Justice Thomas, who was the one that was hearing the appeals for uh, the appeal requests, the writs of certiorari for that particular circuit, uh, Thomas denied the request for an emergency uh, stay of the decision, and now we're waiting on to see whether or not the court will actually take up the case itself on whether or not the process is fair. Um, and actually, while I'm on that topic, let me not forget about it. So the Department of Justice, the Civil Rights Division, back in March of 2016, actually sent a uh, or posted rather a letter to law enforcement agencies, court systems around the country that says that it, they're constitutionally obligated to determine whether or not someone is indigent, someone's broke, someone's too poor to afford any kind of bail. They got to account for that stuff in setting their bail amounts. And if they don't, that is potentially a constitutional violation. You know, for all of Barack Obama's flaws, I disagree with him on so many things. The dude got it right on a lot of criminal justice stuff. The Eric Holder DOJ, the uh, Loretta Lynch DOJ, you know, from things relating to police brutality, to confinement, to too many folks in the prison system. They really got a lot of that stuff right. Now, of course, Papaya Potus is fucking all of that up because Dorito Duterte likes having people in jail. Um, but at the very least, having that stuff spoken into existence, it's now out there and it's becoming something where reform is a, a topic of discussion. Uh, but it's something that's a problem and it needs to be addressed because if you look at – use Durham as an example – uh, I was at a jail forum back in, oh gosh, I can't remember the exact month, but it was last year, back during the campaign. And one of our local district court judges, Marsha Mori, who is now a state representative, was giving statistics to the folks assembled in the room. And 78% of the people in the Durham County Jail on any given night are people who have never been convicted of a crime. They're waiting trial. They're innocent until proven guilty, but they can't afford bond to get out. And that's, that's insane to me to think that three quarters of the jail that we're paying money to fund is people that should probably be out on pretrial release but can't afford it because the bond is too high. 
And that becomes especially problematic for the super minor offenses. What we have here in North Carolina, they're called class three misdemeanors, where your maximum punishment is only a fine. So things like possession of less than half an ounce of marijuana is a class three misdemeanor. It's things used as a fundraiser for the government. All they care about is making sure they can bring the cash in. You know, I've seen people taken to jail for class three misdemeanors who can't afford to get out because they had the misfortune of a magistrate who wanted to be on a high horse and prove a point and require a secured bond instead of an unsecured bond. You know, it, that's it's wild. That's disgusting. You know, to know that your maximum punishment, you can't be confined. So we're going to confine you anyway before you're actually convicted just because you happen to be poor. You know, that's, that's a sign that there's serious issues with our values as a country that we think that's appropriate. So that's enough sermonizing for me on that topic. Uh, that's going to go ahead and wrap our Law 140 segment this week on bail. Hopefully that gives you some insight onto how the process works and some of the flaws with how it's set up. A big thank you to Byron Mobley, our Law 140 lover this week, for suggesting the topic. It was a great choice. Hopefully y'all learned something. Make sure to check the show notes for all of the links to that stuff so you can read more. Uh, someone asked a question, how do we get to the show notes? So the short answer is, it depends. Uh, they're always on our website, fiscamall.com. If you listen to us through the uh, Apple Podcasts app, when you have the episode, there will be a link under the episode that's got a little bit of the description, and you can click Show More. And then once you click that, it'll give you a little bit more, and then you'll see a link that says Show Full Description. And when you click the Show Full Description, it will give you everything. Uh, or as you're playing the episode, if you click the screen that's got our logo on it, it should convert to all of the show notes also. So you can click links in there and it'll take you to all of the other stuff in your browser. Um, for things like Stitcher and Podcast and Podbay and Dogcatcher and all the other places that we're on, I don't know how they deal with show notes, but they're all there. So at the very least, if you don't see it on your podcast app of choice, make sure you to go to fiscamall.com so you can get them. So, folks, that's going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, please make sure to follow us on Twitter. The uh, podcast is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. -L. Follow me on Twitter. I am at Greg underscore Doucette. That is at G-R-E-G -E underscore D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. Feel free to post show comments on our website, fiscalmall.com. Check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. And as always, on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.